Hey there, welcome to the Cause and Effect podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of entrepreneurs and change makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my friend Tracy Rossi, who is Executive Director of Friends of the Children, Portland. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Awesome. Um, so you and I met actually kind of through work, um, through uh, the, uh, the process of bringing you on as an executive director, and I was uh, heading up that uh, search process along with, uh, with our friend Shante Reed. And, um, and I, just, I was just struck by how genuine and real and relatable, and I think the whole staff and the board all felt that. And so, um, you know, I just, I wanna get a sense of how it's been coming into this organization that's, you know, um, has a really good reputation, but you know, like we want uh, the top, um, the number one most admired nonprofit in Oregon and things like that. Um, but gosh, we've been hit with all like all of these crises um, that happen in, uh, that are happening worldwide uh, with COVID and all this. And your start date is literally just like three weeks before the largest fundraiser that you know the state and has ever seen in a virtual sense because we can't do it because uh, of COVID and things like that. So it just how was it walking into friends with just all of this stuff going on? Yeah, thanks for that. You know, listening to you, I get a little nervous about the time <laughs> back. Um, I think like many of us, things started to unravel and we were all trying to catch up with what was happening. But I also believe in that, that it's, it seems like a trite saying that timing is everything. But I do think that for whatever reason, I was ready for Friends of the Children and Friends of the Children was ready for me. And this COVID environment, I think, was is part of that moment. And though there was a lot happening around us, there is a reason that Friends of the Children has been named the, the most impressive nonprofit. And I, I learned a lot about that. So walking into it was, at first I wondered, I was curious, how was, the, how was this going to be? But I immediately realized that there's an exceptional mission, number one, and there's huge commitment and dedication from the board. I, I mean, the board members have not only been there for a long time, but there's a true level of engagement. And I did waltz in a few weeks before the fundraiser, our virtual event, so I actually take very little credit for that. And that, again, was this incredible staff that just pivoted and was passionate and was driven to make sure that this was going to be an outstanding event and then there were communities volunteers and supporters who were there and we have a saying at friends of the children that we support our youth um, no matter what and that ethos was kind of built into that moment that people were kicking it up into high gear and then also what i'm learning as i meet the the supporters of this organization as well that there's just an incredible a lot, uh, there's a philosophical priority that people have with Friends of the Children Portland. And so while I know it's been a difficult moment for a lot of nonprofits in the country, much less in our community, the folks who support Friends of the Children Portland, they were here for us. And that is why we were able to do such a great job at a virtual fundraiser because people stepped up in this critical moment. So even though it 
on its surface seems like it was a daunting time, I think it just reinforced why we are all here and we have to do this work. And the other part of that is, while it's very difficult for all of us um, during COVID and some of the social upheaval that we've all seen, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the youth that we're serving have lived in really challenging circumstances um, for a long time. And so while we've been greatly inconvenienced and our lives have been turned upside down, it hasn't been the same degree of upheaval for families that unfortunately are already vulnerable um, and already live in, um, in many cases, it feels like a crisis every day. So I had to keep that in mind. It's all about perspective and wanting to make sure that we are um, doing our part and staying steady because we have a community that, that needs the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the fundraiser, there was a lot of uncertainty going into that to, you know, wonder if it was even worth doing a virtual fundraiser at all. And typically that fundraiser um, brings in a couple million dollars to the organization. And, um, you know, the uh, Friends of Children, if our viewers don't know, is a uh, mentoring organization for kind of, I always like, I don't go off of the, uh, the exact uh, elevator pitch, but it's almost like teacher caliber mentors that are one-on-one -on -one, um, with, uh, with kids. Um, I think all kids really need a mentor, but uh, this is a, a population of kids that really, really benefits from um, a almost like a very professional paid mentor. And, um, and it's just, it's really, really inspiring work and can be really hard because uh, uh, some of these kids come from foster care scenarios and, and a lot of just tough situations that someone, uh, a mentor off the street, uh, wouldn't be equipped to handle all of the different situations that, that arise. But, um, but yeah, the, the fundraiser ended up raising the something like it was the most successful virtual fundraiser in the country or something? Is that? Yeah, we raised $1.6 million that um, evening. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Nice. Yeah, and so for you, you, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a couple of our mutual friends um, yesterday, Felicia Trip Folsom, who we just interviewed on Club <laughs> yeah. and Lou Raja, and both um, were, you know, because I try and get some questions out there from folks uh, who know you, and and so both wanted to, you know, kind of ask you um your your mom is a little bit of a legend you know um Kay Turan she uh, has run Volunteers of America for Oregon and um I think Felicia was saying has worked uh in a couple governors councils and things like that of the uh, Oregon governors and you know um and I have like my dad is a is a major uh business leader in DC and things like that and so um I think what what was like really fascinating is sorry for my dog in the background, but uh, is this notion that you've stayed true to who you are and haven't been overshadowed, nor like have you tried to overcompensate for um, being really um, you know kind of like you are authentically your own person and reputation and your mom is you know a uh, a legend in her own right and that you have kind of this beautiful relationship with her 
without there being a lot of conflict when you're both leaders. And I think that can be hard in a family sometimes. So I just wondered, like, I think it's kind of this notion of um, you had heard of Friends of the Children for a while. Your mom's been in community service for a long time in Portland. And, um, and so, you know, you were talking about the time was right now for it and just want to get a sense of what you meant by that and like, and the dynamic with your, with your mom and things like that. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that my grandparents, um, they were just very optimistic, positive people. And I would say that they lived their lives from a, a mindset of abundance. And I think my mom has that as well. And I have two children. My daughter is 20, she'll be 23 next month or next week. And my son is 20. And I remember when my daughter was four and she, someone stole the idea of her birthday party and had this birthday party that she had thought of. And my, my daughter pivoted and she said, well, you know what, mom? there's enough sunshine for everybody. And I love that so much. And I think it's that, it's that ethos that runs in our family. Like my mom's done her thing. I feel very fortunate um, because she shares, you know, she shares her learning, she shares her experience and there's enough sunshine for all of us. And so I guess for a long time, I didn't really also, because I believe my mom is very humble. It really, it took me a long time to realize that my mom was as successful as she was and had such an impact on the community. And so I think that helps too. I just kind of relate to her as my mom mm -hmm. and who ha often has really great advice. And so that, that's been helpful. And I think that humility is in just a curiosity and always wanting to learn, I think takes a lot of that space where there could be, you know, conflict or, you know, any kind of, the competitive piece. Um, I'm not a naturally competitive person in the traditional sense. I'm competitive in the sense that I really want the, the service that I'm doing to reach the folks that are, are whose needs need to be met. And I'm really passionate about that. How we get it done, I don't, I'm, I'm not a person who needs to take a lot of credit. I'm not a person who needs i'm happy to take the blame always um that's the type of leader that i am but i don't need a lot of kudos and i think my mom is similar in that way so i think that we're aligned in our the way we move around in the world mm -hmm. and a part of that also is just being very um sensitive to what we're good at and what we need to work on and so when i say in the moment that coming to friends in this moment was really right for me i just for us, it really was the timing for both the organization and myself, because I think that I do like to collaborate. I do feel like I have a lot of um, really positive relationships. And I think that Friends of the Children is this amazing organization, but and also poised to go to the next level and having a more broad base in the community, which I've had the benefit of being here. I'm a born and raised um, Oregonian. And so I have a lot of connections, a lot of friends, a lot of deep relationships mm -hmm. that I think that the organization um, is, can benefit from. They're different than the relationships that they currently have. There's a lot of long-term support. Very interesting growing up here. A lot of the networks here at Friends of the Children, as vast as they are, they're different from mine. And so I feel like it's a great opportunity for me to, to bring in my community and have this intersection of um, a little bit of a different background and a different um, take 
and to expand the opportunities at the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. And so Duncan Campbell, the founder, um, he was uh, also part of this uh, podcast interview community. And um, yeah, it, it makes sense that his network as, you know, as a 76 year old white guy is going to be different than your uh, network. As I, you don't have to give away your age, but as a black woman. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, yeah, I, it's a win-win for sure. Um, so th another question that this leads to is um, we, so I've been on the board of Friends of the Children for 13 years, and um, I think it was about maybe four years ago that the organization really committed to be more intentional about racial equity. 83% um, of the kids that we as Friends of the Children serve are, um, are African-American or uh, Latinx. Um, and, um, and so, you know, you have always, you know, I learned through the interview process through you and a lot of the organizations you, that you've led um, before here, you know, you've always led through a, a, D, a diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of lens to however you approach things. And I just wonder with fresh eyes as you came into Friends, did you see, you know, what was working, what wasn't working um, through a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens? And I think a lot of us in the, you know, a lot of white leaders um, have um, seen an amplification of the importance of, you know, um, racial equity in the past month. Um, maybe, not maybe, it should definitely have been there for a lot longer than this. Um, but, but I just, you know, I wonder what's going on within Friends now through that lens. Yeah, so it is this this moment that we're all witnessing where I think that we've all, from various perspectives, been on this journey around diversity, equity, and inclusion over the last decade, for sure, in general, in our community, and we've talked a lot about it, and it's been baby steps here, baby steps there. What I love about this moment is that it, it requires that we take leaps forward, and this moment of awareness is really asking everyone to identify where they're at when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right now, there are very few people who can ignore it and not ask the question, where am I? Now, are we all on, are we all at the place where I wish we were? No, but I'm much more grateful that people are having very difficult conversations. The nice part about Friends of the Children is that because of the nature of the work that we're doing, we're working with underserved populations, we're working with kids of color, we're working with African-American youth, that the staff that are here, they have a sensibility, still different levels of awareness, but certainly probably much more aware than the average person because this is what they've chosen to do with their life's work. So as when I arrive, there's definitely demand equity as a value of the organization. And I think that there have been, there's been a lot of attention paid to that. Now it's urgent. Um, and so we're fast forwarding that work because while we do all need to figure out where do we fit on this continuum of race, we need to come to um, a better understanding of what our kids need. And it is urgent. You know, we're seeing now that 
African American men in this this system of policing have been at such high risk, um, people of color in general, and one would argue because of the socioeconomic background, but that's not always the criteria as we know, but the youth that we're serving are extremely high risk for being, for being um, victimized and for having the really negative repercussions that racial inequity has. And so it's urgent because we can't have another generation experiencing this. And now the data, I mean, the data has always been there, but now it's, it, it's irrefutable, right? So now it's video. So we start, we used to start off with how many expulsions are there in school and a lot of subjective information that people could still navel gaze and, and not necessarily buy in, but now it's, it was, we don't need to do any more data gathering. And now it's time for all of us as a community to figure out how we can write some of these songs. And so I believe Friends of the Children is going to be at the forefront of that and those conversations. We're advocates, yes, but in addition to that, we've been doing the work. And what I, one of the reasons I came to the organization is we have evidence on what it means to, to see our youth, to have mentorship and have the ability to see and hear our youth who have a lot to offer and what, um, if their needs are met, um, not only will they survive, but they'll thrive. And so one of my hopes going back to having different communities that I hope connect to this mission, in addition to doing our work here at Friends of the Children, how can we link arms with other organizations so that we deepen the impact and create this sense of urgency throughout our community because it's long overdue. Um, so I think that social justice is, um, is gonna be at the forefront of what everybody's thinking about for the next you know, few decades. We're, we can't go back. I kind of want to unpack this word urgency a little bit, and I want to give a little context to it. Um, so just share a little bit what's going on at my um, organization uh, and then see if there's some similar, because I've heard that it's going on at other organizations that have been committed to racial equity, but have traditionally been white-led before and things like that in in this moment of Black Lives Matter. Um, so we, you know, we started our racial journey about five years ago. And um, since then, we've, you know, slowly but surely attracted a, a, a bunch of employees. I would hope almost all of our employees who are, who very much value um, equity and inclusion and diversity. And, um, and so what, you know, what has happened is urgency. You talk about urgency. So a lot of our white employees are feeling, feeling an overwhelming amount of guilt for the first time where they're, they're wanting to get things done right, like today, right now, and um, in solidarity with their black employees and with the black community, but often finding that their voices are the loudest in the room instead of elevating uh, black voices and and that perspective and and so when we've had so we had a you know as senior leadership we all got together with our black employees and and really heard um, hey you know what is most important to you and and it, we got a a resounding like long-term commitment and to the work and uh you know i'm basically there's 
concern that this urgency of white allies, like it's, you know, what I heard from them is like, it's, I, it means a lot to me that, that they're standing by our sides and, and in the work now, but I really like, are they going to be there three months from now, six months from now, two years, five years from now? And so I just wonder is, um, how, what do you, what do you say to like, like long-term sustained urgency? How do we, how do we get there? <laughs> yeah, and a lot of that is having different voices at the table to remind folks that we're, this is just the beginning. It's funny, Ryan, because a friend of mine and I were just talking a couple of days ago because we have um, a couple of white friends who've been protesting pretty consistently for the last few weeks. And our white friends were saying, oh my gosh, this is exhausting. You know, this whole last few weeks post George Floyd have been exhausting. And my friend who's African-American, we're like, this last three weeks, that was Wednesday. That was last, <laughs> that was last Wednesday. So, you know, don't talk to us about fatigue. Um, no, we're not having that. This is a 400 year old problem. And again, going back to people are starting to become, the awakening has begun. But I think that it's going to take true allyship because black folks are tired. You know, we're, we, will, we will continue to lead. That is something that we do. It's in our bones, but we're tired. And what I do have to say I love about this moment is that white folks are stepping up. And they're saying, like you're saying, you know, it was great for white folks to say in your company, this, is, this might be what black people want, but it's like, we'll have you ask them. And I think that having people other than us say, you know, three weeks of protest is nothing, and this is going to be the long haul. And as people start to retract, and they start to retreat, and they will, um, we need not just Black voices to say, no, we haven't even scratched the surface um, in terms of equity, in terms of different voices at the table. And that's the biggest thing in my mind, is having, and I appreciate the work that you've done at Thesis, and I love the, the leadership program to get interns of color and, and different businesses, because that truly is the solution, is to have different voices, people of color in leadership positions, speaking for themselves and speaking for their own experiences is critical, because that's kind of, those are where the, you find the solutions. And um, not, letting, not letting people walk away and say that they're tired, um, because, as we've seen, we're losing so much from a society. If people, I always say this, if people don't want to have equity for the moral reason that everyone should have a voice at the table and everyone deserves to be considered a full human being, look at the business reasons. I mean, you probably know this, the bottom line of businesses who have diverse voices at the table, they do much better. Um, and that's because everything is enriched when we have diversity and different voices and different perspectives, just as human beings, you know, just having different people who are, um, have different things to say and share, we all benefit from it. So it all comes from a good place. And I also think that, you know, the other side of inequity and injustice is white supremacy. Like, let's just call it out. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe white supremacy is not good for even white people. I mean, there's a very small margin, a very small percent, if you want to go to the 1% that, that seem like they might be in, quote unquote, in charge, although they don't look very happy to me. If you're looking at our national landscape, they're mad all the time. Like, why are you all mad? You have everything. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't work for most people because very few people 
exist in that mode. And so busting that open is going to create opportunities and space. And I think um, agency, not just for people of color. Um, and granted, people of color have been receiving a very, very short end of that stick. So I'm not putting everyone on the same plane, but I also feel like some of the things that we are seeing in our system, kind of this breakdown in our political process is people are deeply unhappy um, because they're not seeing that they can have access to joy and happiness, um, even if they're not people of color. And so I think it's time to turn this thing upside down. And so maybe that will be what helps the sense of urgency stay ma maintained is that sadly, I, I think that ultimately to make change, people are, I don't mean this in a negative way, it sounds negative, but people are fundamentally selfish. And yes, I think right now people are in support of Black Lives Matter and they're wanting to be allies, but to the extent that they get tired and realize, you know what, this system is actually really not good for me or my family either, I think that will keep this moving forward. Yeah, I think what you just said about in personal lives, like it's it's almost like, you know, we living in a more homogenous um, bubble that we often create for ourselves is less enriching. There's less joy in it. There's less learning in it. Um, you know, I think uh, when you were talking about the business case, I mean, I feel like most CEOs, especially of larger companies, intellectually know for sure that uh, about the McKenzie report that diverse teams perform 30% you know, better and more profitably and they're more adaptable to change and they reflect their consumers and all, they know all of these things, but they will choose the easier path of you know, someone that makes them more comfortable because they have more in common or it's just you know it's just flows easier um then perform better like in and to have all these other better because the short-term uncomfortability is too painful for the short medium and long-term gain of performance and friendships and enriching and all of these things it's just amazing how it's almost like you know how uncomfortable it is to go and do public speaking for the first time. I think 90% of people would choose death over that. Like, that, <laughs> I that's think that's true. That's a real statistic. <laughs> and like, and in America, you know, white culture is the dominant culture. And so as white people, we get, you know, we subconsciously, it just works for us. And yeah. we just expect all people of color to adapt to that dominant culture. And we never really have to adapt to it. So we don't build any muscles on that. And we're not intentional about it. So it just kind of perpetuates how it always has been. And like the subconscious stuff is strong, like it lasts. And so hopefully all of this, you know, social justice activism, especially from white allies will, um, will have people sit in being uncomfortable for a little bit longer because that's where the change comes from. Yes, and growth. Discomfort, I was just sharing this with the teams. I had team space with our team youth last week. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in terms of core assets is resilience and grit. You did those things when you work hard and when you have to solve problems. And you're right, if you don't have the opportunities to go against the grain as often in mainstream culture, that it's, it's, a, it's a discomfort in and of itself to do things differently. Mm -hmm. 
but it's once you do it, it's how you grow. Like I, professional edges, personal discomfort, as hard as they are, I think that's how you become a great leader. I think that's how you become uh, an elder in your community is by having some obstacles to overcome and learning from. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's transition to your life story a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> talk about what it was like growing up as a little girl in, I think you grew up in North, Northeast Portland? Yeah, Northeast Portland. Okay, and you have siblings, and we already talked about your mom, but like relationship with mom and dad, and like the activities you were into on the weekend, like what what was life like? Yeah, so born and raised in Portland, I have a brother, younger brother, and a younger sister, and you know it was just kind of my regular life. Although it was strange now that I reflect back, so I went to independent school um, from K through twelfth grade, which in and of itself is a little different. Um, I was, I love reading, so I guess I was considered a little nerdy, um, but I also had my grandparents, they um, owned, ran, built a beauty salon and barbershop, so they were entrepreneurs, and so a big part of my childhood is my cousins and I, we kind of quote, unquote, worked at the shop, we called it the shop, or the salon, and um, so watching my grandmother and grandfather who are entrepreneurs was a big part of who I was. And I think that has had a huge impact on me. They were leaders. I wouldn't have considered them leaders growing up because they were just my grandmother and grandfather, but we all were learning about a business. So I had two, kind of two lives. I had my working in the shop with my cousins um, after school and on the weekends, which was fun. And then I had my life at school at this independent school, which I love learning and it was just a really, um, now I realize uh, a really amazing learning and life experience. Um, it's 52 acres in the woods and you called your teachers by the first name. And so it was just this very um, beautiful experience. So I had those two things happening and it just seemed perfectly normal. Um, and that's how I grew up. I also, because I grew up in Portland, which was very white, and then my independent school was very white, but also the neighborhood that, that my the shop was in was a red line district. It was primarily African-American. I just naturally moved through different communities, and I thought that was perfectly normal. Um, and I think that has helped me um, as I have gotten older and then left. I've lived in Washington, D.C., and I, I love to travel and recognize how white Portland was once I left. I didn't think it was strange until I left. Um, but those are all good learning experiences. Um, but it also made me just really, going back to what we were just talking about, just being in more diverse environments whenever I'm there, I really appreciate it. Um, there's just a learn, there's just a different opportunity to engage um, when there's more diversity around. Mm -hmm. But it was a great childhood. I was loved, I was nurtured, I had, um, natural mentors. I was fortunate enough to have natural mentors. So those of you who know my mom who think she's a force, if you knew my grandmother, she was a true force of nature. <laughs> um, and it was, yeah, I had really great mentorship along the way. Okay, so you enjoyed reading. Like, what, what kind of fun stuff were you into? Um, it always changed. So what was I reading? I, or, I and, liked and a lot. Yeah, and, and outside of reading, like, like. Oh, what other yeah, things? Um, so, I, believe it or not, I was um, big into 
uh, even though I, I switched gears, but I was big into math and science. I like nature. Um, we did camping. We went camping a lot. And people who know me now aren't going to believe that, but I grew up camping all around Oregon. Because well, you're big into hiking now, right? Yeah, I do. I love, thank you, Ryan. I love hiking now. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, yeah, I'm not, I, and I had good friends, but just if I was one of those people who had just a couple of really good friends. I didn't have a large group. I, I think I was considered an outlier because I was pretty much an introvert and I did love school. So it was probably a little bit of a nerdy outlier um, and then grew into myself, I think, as I got older. And, um, and I think that in my community, becoming, being considered smart wasn't necessarily considered an asset when I was young. So when I was in my community on the, the beauty salon and barbershop side, my um, being smart was something I hid and it was something that I could share when I was at school. So it took me a while in my 20s and 30s when I was like, oh, you know, it's okay, it's fine. You know, I can, I can be smart. And actually there's some perks. <laughs> I think that's common for you know, <laughs> all of us that you like, you kind of downplayed any kind of smart stuff if you were hanging out with athletes or what have you, and, you know, yeah, whatever exactly. you're, yeah, you, you just adapted, yeah. Um, and so when, when an adult asks you maybe at the barbershop or actually maybe, did you have a different answer to what do you want to be when you grow up when you were asked at Catlin Gable when you're in school or, and then at the, at the beauty salon? That's a good question. So it wasn't quite as black and white, but I do remember, um, my dad, who's a, a wonderful person. He was a wonderful person. He's passed away. I remember when I was younger, he asked me, what did I want to be? So my, my um, mom has her master's degree and my dad started at University of Portland, but he didn't finish college. And so, but he got it, you know, he valued education. He was super intelligent, probably one of the most intelligent people that I knew. Um, but I always, I think I felt a little self-conscious about my education when it came to him. And so I remember once he said, uh, he called me me because I was very smart skinny considered skinny so it was like it was very ironic so hey me what do you want to be when you grow up and I said oh I just want to be a shoe clerk I'll never forget that and he said well you just have to make a deal he laughed because it was funny because I I don't know what in me made me want to be a shoe clerk and he said well if you want to be a shoe clerk that's great he goes but I would fully expect you to be the best shoe clerk around <laughs> and I love that about my dad but then the other, the other part of me, and it wasn't someone at Catlin Gable, it was one of my best friends who went to school in Lake Oswego, and she's African-American, and we're still best friends, she lives in Pasadena. And I remember, so one of the things that she reminded me of when I got this job at Friends of the Children, she's like, of course, this is what you're doing, Tracy. Do you remember this elaborate um, organization that you had formed in our minds when we were in middle school? And I said, no, what? Then I completely remembered. So in my mind, I wanted to run a nonprofit, found and run a nonprofit called I Am Somebody. And it was geared toward African-American girls in particular, because I remember we would get these um, magazines, these teen magazines, 17, and there's some other ones, and they were always white girls. And I remember always looking like, and finally in 17, the cover of 17, there's finally once uh, Whitney Houston hit the cover and I just about died. But I am somebody, we would have magazines and we would have 
um, books and they were all kind of to reflect everyone. And the name of it was I Am Somebody. <laughs> so here we are all these years later and I'm at a mentoring organization with lovely kids who are definitely somebody. <laughs> well, I'm a huge believer that intentions become thoughts, become things. Um, and it doesn't, usually that question, you know, you get like, like my friend Sue Embry, she wanted to be a spy when she grew up, you know, and she runs a data research firm, but like, and I wanted to be a point guard in the NBA. So like something pretty unrealistic, but then other things are, you know, on point um, because you, you end up manifesting what you thought about when you're younger. So that's kind of cool. Oh, wow. And maybe one day I will be a shoe clerk and I bet you'll be a that one's easier i think to like you know check off the list (laughs) maybe i don't know yeah um cool so and then so you go to dc um and you went to catholic university there and um and you studied you majored in english yes and so um what would like when you did that did you have a profession in mind or you just were like engrossed in the learning and you knew down the road it would all work out yeah so um actually i went to catholic university but when i left high school i went to carnegie mellon university first so i transferred missed that so i went to pittsburgh to be an engineer um at carnegie mellon university for those of you who don't know it it's one of the top 25 um science and engineering schools in the country. And so that was interesting because I was good in math and science, but um, there was a lot of pressure put on me, um, especially my mom very well intended. You know, you're an African-American woman, you're good in math and science, go be an engineer and go into STEM. And that was one of those moments when I, I really recognized the pressure that some of us can have on our shoulders as to people of color, women of color, to show up for the community. And I went and you really have to love it to be an engineer. I adore the people out there who are engineers, yeah. And it took me a moment to really realize like I actually have to live my dream. I can't live someone else's dream. And I also can't represent for an entire community. And so that's when I made the decision to um, transfer and go to Catholic University and um, study there. I love liberal arts and I love DC. I just love the backdrop of DC. That, that was an education in and of itself. So that that pivot, that change, it was a big change in who I was and, and wanting to be true to myself. Hmm. And I was there a little bit after I graduated. I love DC and I actually worked in the private sector for a hot moment. And it was again that same that same call that I needed to be mission driven and I wasn't a bottom line person and I have great respect for people who work in the private sector. It's just, it was for me. And so that's when I moved back to Portland and started working in social services. So I always ask this question, but typically in the 16 year old to 25 year old uh, years in our lives, like we go through a really formative life moment, which is either really challenging um, or it's very independence producing, like we're, we're surprise ourselves with, um, how we become these adults. 
in this in a very specific life moment and would you say that that making those the switch in colleges or you know switch from private sector to public and the conversation that you maybe had to have with your mom because that was her dream and not yours like would that be it or was there other life things that were happening like a death in the family or anything like like what was that like defining life moment in that in that time of your life yeah it's interesting that things happened around the same time so my defining life moment certainly was my dad passed away when i was 20 years old and he was only 42 and it was just uh unexpected he had a heart attack um and that was a really huge moment in my life it was, you know, you don't ever recover from something like that, but it was in my really formative years and my dad and I were really close. And I just, I think that that helped me without even knowing it. It was just a little while after that, that I made the decision to transfer. And he was just one of those people that wanted, you know, if you're going to be a shoe clerk, just be the best one. Um, he really felt that it was important to be who you are and to, Feel very proud of that and I think I felt the responsibility to do that after he passed away and he also was an interesting parent my dad never talked to me like I was a child and so I had these wonderful like mini vignettes and um, stories that he shared with me at a very young age that just resonate very powerfully with me now and I think as sad as it is to lose your parent I think some of the a lot of his messages that he shared with me when I was younger, because of his death, really crystallized. And so I carried them with me in a very powerful way. And so he's definitely, um, that definitely was a, a life-changing moment for me. Are there any of his sayings or vignettes that like even just a line or two are in your head that, that you call on? Yeah, one, you know, be who you're meant to be was something that was very powerful for him. Like it just, just show up in your way. And then also there's this image, Ryan, that I love. Um, I have a picture of it on my phone and I look at it all the time. So my dad, very enigmatic person, but if there's a picture of him, I was there, I was very young and he was sitting down and he had um, a beverage in his hand and then he had a glass that he had balanced on his thigh and then he was talking to someone. And I was in the room, so I know it wasn't closed. And that just said it all, because he was a super brilliant person. I'm like, why, how are you balancing your glass <laughs> that has liquid in it? And then you're engaged in this conversation. And I just, I love that because it just reminds me that we can engage all of, our, all of us, like our faculties, our intelligence, our social skills, and, and still find joy. And I just, if to, to me, it just encapsulates who he was and what I aspire to do is, and I also remember early in my career, I was um, in a supervisor's office and this was when I was in the private sector for five minutes and he was sitting in his chair and he had his feet on the desk and he was leaning back and I remember being a little nervous and I remember saying, I really want to feel that comfortable in my job. And while I would never sit that way, I just remember, I, I finally feel now, and I felt this way probably in the last few years where my private and my professional life are very aligned. There's not like the professional Tracy and the private Tracy and the external Tracy and the um, internal Tracy. Of course, we don't show all of us in all of our different spaces, but it's definitely a really nice alignment 
and I, I think of that picture with my dad um, and it feels really good. That's super cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so in the, the um, interview process for you coming on to your current role as executive director at Friends, um, I remember this one piece that, you know, I think it must have been like the second or third, and I don't know what, but we were getting pretty far along in, in um, getting to know one another, it, not just us, you, you and I individually, but like the, the steering committee. And you had a moment of clarity in between the two interviews where you, you know, it was almost like you heard from a higher power that like you were meant to do this work at Friends of the Children. I think you were just kind of talking about that, but it sounds like for all of the significant moves that you made throughout your career from, you know, after, you know, being at uh, Catlin Gable, you know, in the, in the working sense, and then I Have a Dream, which is now called Greater Than, and then Center for Women's Leadership, and now Friends, like, can you describe that, like how you got clear on that for friends and then maybe walk through a little bit of your journey uh, in some of those organizations? Yeah, it's so, it's, it's, it's a great, it's great. Yeah, so when I, um, when I was asked to take a look at the friends position, you know, I, I was at the Center for Women's Leadership as an executive director and I was asked to take a look and I was dialed in at the center, I was doing my thing, I wasn't looking and, um, but I looked at the, the position and then I re-looked at the organization, which is phenomenal. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to, to throw my, um, I'm so bad at cliches, but my, my, whatever. Hat in the ring, you know, hat in the ring. <laughs> I get them all mixed up. Um, throw my hat in the ring and I was ready. And so even the, how we started this conversation when you're like, you know, this moment, it's COVID, it's crazy. Strangely enough, I was always very centered around this. Even like, even will I get this job? I didn't know, but I felt very centered. I didn't feel spastic or, or what's going to happen. I just felt it felt like a very natural process. And then as I get to know, got to know all of you, and then I realized you're right, Ryan. That as like I was supposed to be doing this at this time. Like, and I look back, and the trajectory just kind of led me there. So prior to being here at Friends of the Children, I was leading at Center for Women's Leadership, which is over at Portland State University. And I had been there for three years um, in that position. And it was, I learned, well, I'm going to go back to three jobs because I think I'll catch up with myself. So when, after Catlin, um, so I was the admission director, admission and financial aid director at Catlin Gable, which was wonderful. And people stay there for a long time. It's kind of a nice, beautiful 52 acres, it's lovely, it's, it's just a wonderful place to be in. And I love my job, but um, I actually just picked up the newspaper one day when I was still getting newspapers. And um, after being there for, I don't know, five or six years, and the headline was um, something ridiculous like the, the dropout, the high school dropout rate in, uh, in Portland was something like 40% for kids of color. And I remember saying to myself out loud, like, who's doing something about this? And when I said it, it really resonated. I'm like, well, what am I doing about it? And so 
Catlin's a wonderful school and they're doing their best in terms of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I knew that I wasn't going to have any impact on the high dropout rate. And so it was right after that, a friend of mine sent me a job announcement over at I Have a Dream Oregon, which was greater than, and it was one of these nonprofit job descriptions that was like three pages long. I had all these different roles and responsibilities and you, you, you get paid like $10. <laughs> and I remember saying, this is the job for me. And it was so outrageous, but it just spoke to me. So I just put my hat in the ring, got that one right that time, right? Put my hat in the ring and um, I got that job. And what was really important to me though, is that it had, it was all about equity and providing support for um, high priority youth and their families. And so that was great. And it was, it was a big job, it was very entrepreneurial um, because they were taking the old model and they were creating something very new. And because of my experience at the beauty salon and barbershop, I love, tinkering around and changing models and doing things that haven't been done and messing up and trying again. So that spoke to me and I did that for six and seven years. And again, oh, and even when I left Callum, someone actually said, are you, are you sick? Are you leaving because you're sick? And I said, no, why would you ask that? They're like, because no one ever leaves. Like, this is such a great job. And I was, you know, getting paid less, the whole nine years. It's like, no, I'm kind of following what's important to me. So then I was at, um, I have a dream and I did my thing and I was learning about programs. And I also, and I just remember, I don't know, I just felt like I needed to, I wanted to be an executive director. It was important for me to have, I love program, but I wanted more perspective about the larger organization. And so I did a very unusual move. I, take, I took actually a huge pay cut to become an executive director at a very small but awesome um, program called Innovative Changes. It's a community development financial institution, um, in, which is code for a bank. So going back to my Carnegie Mellon roots, I do have the capacity to do math and science, but it was really hard. I'm getting a headache thinking about it. Um, but I really wanted to be in that ED role and learn about the organization. So it took, it seemed like a really not so smart move, but it was a really important move for me. And then um, I've always stayed at organizations for a good amount of time, but um, about nine months in, two, three people tapped me on the shoulder and said, you should really look at this job. Like, Tracy, this is, this is your job over at the Center for Women's Leadership. And I said, last I checked, I just started a job. But it was the third person who I truly admire as one of my mentors. I said, just stop for a moment and look at this job. And so I did, and it was all about women's leadership, and it was... It spoke to me, it was right after the presidential election where a lot of eyes and ears were on women. And I put my hat in the ring and I got that position and it was a great place for me to be. What was interesting is I, I found out when I got there, because I did a lot of research on women's leadership, is that for women, fun fact, um, they usually have to be tapped on the shoulder four to seven times before they opt into leadership. So when I said no, not no to my friends, that's what women often do. So, so keep tapping women on the shoulder on the one hand, if you're wanting them to step into leadership. And on the other hand, if you're a woman, don't wait to be tapped. Just do it. Right. Yeah, because yeah, guys never wait. We, we no, ask. they don't. They, they, they we're, in, we're entirely unqualified, and we we're like assume we're leaders anyway, you know? Yeah, it's just crazy. Um, yeah, and then so... Yeah, I got, I did my thing at the center, and then I actually believed, though, while I was at the center, I think it was very early on, I remember 
seeing a, uh, the position for the executive director before my time at Friends of the Children. And I remember knowing that I wasn't ready. Um, and it's interesting because my time at Innovative Changes and my time at Center for Women's Leadership and of course my time at um, I Have a Dream, all of those, and even my time at Catlin, all of those, those experiences helped prepare me for this moment. And I could have just stayed, like I've always had great jobs um, and I could have just stayed at any of those places, but I had this feeling along the way that I was headed towards something very specific. Um, in my interview, I don't know if you remember this, Ryan, I said, I'm, I'm passionate about this work, but that's not quite it. I'm actually called to do it. And I think that in all those positions, I was being called. And also what I also am mindful of is that I had to listen for the call um, because it's not as easy as, as me playing it back sounds. It was really difficult to make some of those decisions, but I had to listen to my values. I go back to that Oregonian newspaper headline that just it, it hit me like a punch in the gut. And I needed to, I need, I just need to be one of the people in the community that are helping to answer that question um, mm -hmm. and to be with other people who are committed to answering that question like you, Ryan. So it's been, um, I feel very fortunate. I feel very blessed um, because I used to say that I curated my life. Um, you know, I put all these pieces together and I don't, I can't even believe I said that, say that now because I didn't really have a lot to do with it. I feel like I'm the recipient of a lot of uh, grace and good blessings. Well said. Um, okay, so I'm going from good thoughts to pain right now. Um, hey, I'm with so you. I'll go with you. you. You talked about a punch in the gut, but like what is, can you describe one of the hardest, most painful life lessons in your community efforts or your personal life? Like pick one or the other. Um, Cause I feel like we always learn so much from, from pain. Uh, yeah, let me think about that. Yeah, you know, um, I think one of the most painful lessons. So when I, when my mom decided that she wanted to send me to uh, independent school, it was kind of a big deal and it was hard for my family to do that. My grandmother actually, um, told my mom that she should not have me go to independent school. I should go to public school. And the cousins that I talked about who had all worked in the shop together, um, you know, we were all very close. And my grandmother said, if you make the decision for her to go to independent school, it's going to create, a, it could create a rift between her cousins because she's going to go in this, this other lane and they're in this lane and it's going to cause family confusion. And, you know, for most of my family members, it's, we're very close, but I have to say my grandmother was a little prescient in the fact that there have been a couple of family members in my life that have not been able to share my, my success and, my, um, and see my perspective and my point of view. It's really not my success, is they just don't, they don't see me, they don't, I don't fit into their box. And that's sad, right? Because my mom and I, she made the right decision. You want every child to follow their path and to follow their dream. And I think, and I, when I was at the center, I actually mentored a lot of young women in this space. And it, it's a phenomenon that I don't think it's just for um, 
women of color. I think it's a phenomenon that sometimes when you you go outside of your community and you have experiences that take you in, on one path, there might be some people in your community that um, resent you for that or you don't fit into a box neatly the way that some people think you should. And while it's easy to say, oh, you know, that's fine, I don't need them, it's actually this painful that um, you can't maintain all of the relationships. And my hope is that maybe life brings people back together. But I think that having taken a different path and um, for myself, and I think about this in the work that we're doing um, here at Friends, you know, is um, staying connected to caregivers and, friend, and, and parents so that the youth always have their families um, and that we don't create a, a rift between youth and their own community because I've seen that happen. So I think that's probably been something very painful. Mm -hmm. So last question, is there anything, you know, kind of surprising that the audience might not know about you as far as like what shaped your your life like you know kind of in those formative moments that you haven't covered already or you feel like you've covered the the big pieces um something that you know that maybe was like a real independent moment for you or or something that was a life moment that you that you haven't really expanded on um, I'll say a couple of things on that. So um, just the power, I've talked to you a little bit about this, Ryan, the power of friendship. Um, so I have just great friends and I never knew what a, an asset that would be in my life from a personal and professional perspective. And just having those abilities to have conversations and to get to have self-care and have people who have your back, um, that's been a huge, huge thing for me. Um, and also, you know, we talk about our formative years, um, but I also love the fact that we're always still growing. And I just have to say this one thing, um, because it was completely unexpected, is, um, so being in my position now, I have the opportunity to meet with our founder, Friends of the Children, Duncan Campbell. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I have, I have this founder that I get to interact with. And for those of you who don't know Duncan, and I didn't know him well at all, he's amazing. And so here I am at this wonderful position in my professional career. And all of a sudden I have this new mentor that has emerged in my life. Completely unexpected. I He's so full of joy. I could see you. And he always uses the expression, we're kindred spirits. So yeah, I can see that with you too, for sure. Yes, it's, it's, I did not see that one coming. And so that's the other thing, you know, things happen on your formative years but they still happen so that's been a joy yeah that's a great point i gotta incorporate that into my question next time <laughs> <laughs> well we are at time but tracy it's so awesome the hour just flew by and can't even believe it i Thank know <laughs> so great thanks for sharing all your wisdom and um and we'll be talking next week uh, about friend stuff um but thanks for inviting me to share this hour with you it's been fun i yeah. appreciate it